Well, back to Acts chapter 2, where we're going to see that it really is marvellous. Acts chapter 2, and we'll continue reading from verse 22. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, he and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Big passage, lots to think about. We need God's help, so let's pray. (laughs) Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for where we find ourselves in your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, help us to see what is here clearly 
and help us to respond to it deeply that we may glorify you in our response and that we may be blessed in our responding to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we, as we go through life, we all experience what we might call defining moments. Defining moments. Our first job. Can you remember that? Your first job, maybe uh, your first paycheck. Getting married. The birth of a child. Becoming a mum. Becoming a Christian. And so on. Life has many defining moments for us. And all of those events or moments actually, whether we realise it or not, shape us in some way. Hence why they call them defining moments. This morning, if you haven't already worked out, we are looking at one of the most powerfully defining moments in the whole of the Bible. An act of God that has shaped history as we know it ever since. A defining moment that has shaped how we as people, in fact we as sinners, can know and relate to God ever since. That has shaped how we respond to him, what it looks like to live for Jesus, what it means to be his church, in fact, in many ways, wonderful ways. What event are we talking about that's so defining? Well, we're talking about Pentecost, aren't we? An event, as we read, filled with all manner of powerful and supernatural phenomena. An event awash or saturated, if you like, with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's have a look again at verse 1, just for a couple of verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a rushing wind. It was a sound like a rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues like fire, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages, as we saw a little later, languages of all the people present in Jerusalem, as the Holy Spirit gave these Galileans this ability to speak in other languages. It's a phenomenal event. The people are amazed. They hear this sound, we're told, and they come together and they are bewildered, as you might be, right? This is no normal, everyday occurrence. This is, this is mind-blowing. They're bewildered by it. And they're amazed because they're hearing, they're hearing these, these Galileans speaking in their own language and they're trying to put it together and they can't. And verse 11 and 12 shows us where they land. Both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages or tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's a good question. 
It's a great question. It's the right question to ask. What does this mean? Now, just on the side, it's important for us to know something about the Bible at this point, and that is this. It is not a flat book. It is not a flat book, and by that I mean it's not just a series of stories that are all kind of about the same level of intensity and action and so on. The Bible's not like that at all. It has peaks as you read through it, as you understand the whole story. It has peaks, and then it has, you know, just going along, and then it has another peak of God's activity. And every time there's a peak, it reveals that God is doing something big in his plans and in his purposes. It's kind of like a volcano if you think of it that way. A volcano might be there for years and it's just there's activity in there. If you look closely enough, it's, you know, it's not like nothing's happening, but it's there and every now and again this, this thing erupts and it's intense and the power at that moment is off the scale. The Richter scale kind of goes you know, like that. And this is true of God in his unfolding revelation that we have in his word. God is always active. He's active now. Sustaining our lives, sustaining his world, sending the beautiful sun and the rain that's coming later this week that's going to make the lawn look nice and green. He's always doing this. He's always active, sustaining his world. Activity that can go unnoticed, in fact, unless you look closely with the eyes of faith. But every so often the activity of God erupts or explodes as he works out his purposes in his world. And when that happens, there is always, pretty much always, an explosion of supernatural phenomena that accompanies what God is doing. And more often than not, when that happens, he is acting to save those who look to him. And you've got to think of the Exodus, for example. Things are just going along. The people of God are in slavery in Egypt. God hasn't forgotten them. He's still actively sustaining them, even in there. But then, there's this explosion of phenomena and activity and God comes and with the seven plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea and so on and the people are saved out of Egypt. There's a peak in God's activity. And that's exactly what we have here this morning, a peak in the activity of God in his world, for his glory, for his purposes, for our good. And we need to ask the question as they did, what does this mean? What does this mean? Which is precisely what Peter, the question that Peter answers in the rest of the passage. They ask the question, what does it mean? He says, well, brothers, (laughs) let me tell you what this means. And so two things I want us to see this morning that Peter shows us this means. Firstly, Jesus has won a new day of salvation for us. He has won a new day of salvation for us. Have a look at verse 14 through 16. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's a bit early. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall dream dreams, and so on. 
God is doing something significant. This was promised centuries before and prophesied centuries before by Joel. What is he doing? He's pouring out his spirit on who? On all flesh. Or another way to put that is on all nations, all people groups. When? In the last days. Just a point of notice. Peter is saying this is the beginning of the last days. Right here and right now. Joel prophesied that. Peter's saying this is what's happening. Joel's, Joel's prophecy is coming true. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Both men and women will understand and proclaim God's word of salvation. Both men and women will be enabled by the spirit to bear witness to God's gracious, saving message. At the end of these last days, as we see in verse 20, there will be cosmic disturbances before the great day of the Lord, we're told, the coming Day, the great and magnificent day, the great day of judgment, the final day when Jesus returns to judge, to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And in the meantime, until that day, verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Everyone, not just the Jews, Jew and Gentile. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who turns from their sin to Jesus and trusts in him as saviour will be saved, will experience God's powerful salvation. And did you notice what's at the centre of this fulfilment of prophecy that Peter is showing us? It is the powerful saving work of God that erupted on the pages of history in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 22, 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed with the, by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the central event around everything else that is going on here. A man attested to you by God. Mighty works and wonders and signs were happening in the ministry of Jesus. There you go. There's more. There's another one of those peaks in the life and ministry of Jesus. There's phenomena everywhere. What does this mean? Should have been the question. Didn't see it. God attested him to them by these works. And as, as Peter says, as you yourselves know, it was obvious. He was delivered up by God. To be crucified, but they crucified him with wicked hands. This is at the centre of what God is doing. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners according to the sovereign, powerful plan of God, rejected by sinners and killed by the hands of lawless men, the Roman authorities, yet raised to life. By the sovereign power of God, having paid the price for sins in full, this is what is happening. This is what God is doing. What does humanity contribute to this event? 
Not a lot. The rejection of Jesus and his crucifixion. But in God's sovereignty, in this ver- it was this very event through which the new day dawns. As Jesus comprehensively deals with human sin on the cross, your sin and mine, a new day dawns. He makes it possible for the Spirit of God to be poured out on people in a new way. And more than that, as he told us he would, he would in John 14 and following, for the Spirit of God to indwell people in a new way. What does this mean? Jesus has changed everything for eternity. He has won a new day of salvation for us. Now, we actually see this pictured in the miracle itself. It's not uh, immediately obvious, but let me show you. I don't know whether you noticed it there, because there is another crowd gathered in one place with lots of languages in the Bible. I don't know whether you know the one. It's the gathering of people at the Tower of Babel. It's actually all humanity gathered together in defiance of God. He told them to go into all the world and multiply. They said, no, 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 we're going to make a name for ourselves. We want to be, thought, we want to be great. So we're going to gather in defiance of God and build a tower. God saw what they were doing and he brought a degree of judgment on them. And how he did it was he confused their languages so they couldn't understand each other and scattered them in his judgment of them. But Pentecost is the opposite, isn't it? People are gathered from all over the known world in one place. They're not gathered in defiance of God. They're gathered to worship God. And the blessing of God comes upon all who are gathered there from all over the world. And everyone is not confused now. They're actually hearing and understanding the mighty works of God's salvation in their own tongues. The reversal of the curse has happened and the blessing of God is being poured out. Do you see what Jesus has done? Do you see what he's accomplished? Do you see what he's won for all who will come to him? And interestingly enough, it's precisely what God promised straight after Babel. Have a look at this. The very next verses. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And last line, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Straight after Babel. Jesus is the descendant, the seed, the one who has come taken the curse and secured the blessing. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus has won a new day of salvation for us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had our annual remembrance of Anzac. 
and I don't know whether you went along to one, the, some of the restrictions were eased, but I think it was kind of invite only to most of the kind of celebrations, maybe unless you're out in the suburbs, you could go to those. But it's something really become, it's become more and more kind of central to our identity as a, as a country and people go in vast numbers. I'm, I think they're expecting to be able to go back next year. But there are lots of things you do when you go to an Anzac remembrance, but there's probably two key ones. You remember the price that was paid for you and you remember the freedom that was won for you. Remember the price and you remember the freedom. That's what we're going to do a little later as we come around this table. We're going to remember the price and we're going to remember the freedom. You see how what Jesus did for us is literally off the charts. It's off the charts. You see how he makes the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit available to us. And he did this for us. In fact, for everyone who calls upon his name. I wonder this, wonder this morning, have you, have you called upon his name? Have you called upon his name to save you? Have you done that? Because if you haven't, you can, because it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you can come to Jesus with confidence, knowing that you can come and call on him and that he will save you if you do call on him. You don't have to come oh, second-guessing. I'm not sure whether he will or he won't. You know, Maybe I'm not good enough. No, no. All that's required is to call on his name and put your hand up, so to speak. Not an easy thing to do. If you have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, your sins have been fully dealt with for you. We say that a lot, right? Maybe we just need to sit with that for a second. Past, present, future. Fully dealt with. How do we know? Because the Spirit of God was poured out. If he didn't do enough, that wouldn't have happened. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, you have God's Spirit within you. And with you to enable you to live for him in a way that would otherwise be completely and utterly impossible. And lastly, you have God's Spirit so that what Jesus has won for you can be proclaimed by you wherever he's placed you men, women, children, whoever. He has won a new day of salvation for us. Secondly, Jesus reigns as Lord and Christ over us. Notice there's a couple of quotes here. Peter shows us that Pentecost not only reveals what Jesus won for us on the cross, but he shows us that by his resurrection, he now reigns. Jesus reigns. He's reigning now. 
It's not just the pouring out of the Spirit in a new way that was prophesied by Joel too, but David himself prophesied the resurrection of Jesus as the eternal king. And notice how Peter explains that in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, in case you think this psalm's about David, and it is initially about David, but it's not just about David. He said, let me say with confidence, you know, David's kind of um, you know, down the road there in the ground. He's still there as far as I know. He's dead, he's buried, his tomb is with us. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn that he would give a descendant on his throne. And so he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of of Jesus from the grave. And Peter says, oh, by the way, we're witnesses of it. We've seen him since he rose. We've been with him. So what's the result of the resurrection then? Well, verse 33 and following tells us, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's the result? Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He's not on the cross anymore. He's not in the grave anymore. He's exalted to the right hand of God, which is the place and power of the place of divine authority. He's ascended and he's been given this place, ultimate authority over everything. Once he's there, he receives the promise of the Spirit which was promised by the Father, and then he pours it out because he's dealt with sin and now it's okay for God to be that close to sinners because our sin has been dealt with. And he, in doing so, he ushers in this new day. He pours out his spirit in a new way, the presence of God with his people, unrestricted. Up until then, you didn't go near the presence of God. Only one guy went once a year. He was a priest. He went into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. He took blood with him as a sacrifice and offered it on behalf of the people. But the rest of us, no, no, we stayed away. We didn't get that close. Now the Spirit of God is poured out on his people and indwells his people because of what Jesus has done. And verse 36, Jesus is enthroned as Lord and Christ. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord of all and Saviour of all. Lord and Christ, which means exactly that. Lord over all. Sovereign over all. That he has made. Someone has helpfully put it this way there is not a square inch of all that there is, galaxy upon galaxy, universe upon universe, every square inch over which Jesus cannot rightfully say, Mine. It's Lord over all. And not sometime in the future. Now, right this minute, as you sit there and I stand here, he's reigning now. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, God has made him Lord and Christ. 
Which means, perhaps a little uncomfortably, he is rightfully our judge. The one to whom we must give an account. Everything we are and have is from him and so we will ultimately answer to him. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, but notice Christ, which means Messiah or saving one. So the good news is this, though we must give an account to him for our lives, if we come to him and put our hope and trust in him, he will save us and rescue us. God has made him Lord, sovereign over all, and Christ, saviour of all who comes to him. Remember verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Second thing we see, Jesus reigns as Lord and Christ now. Now what's the day today? Is it the 8th? Seventh, eighth, twelfth. A few days from now, thirteenth, fourteenth. You don't know what I'm talking about. We're having a federal election. I'm pretty twenty-first, is it? Oh, it's the other weekend. I've got more time to work out what I'm going to do. That's great, excellent. But the federal election's coming up, right? Sometime in the next couple of weeks. And something's going to happen at the end of that federal election. We are going to receive one leader as a nation, having rejected the other leader. I'm pretty sure none of the minor parties are going to get in as the Prime Minister. So it'll probably either be a, one of those two. And interesting, aren't they, federal elections, democratic elections? It's all about choosing the leader or the government you want over you, as opposed to the other one. And don't hear me mocking it, it's important, really important, and we need to prayerfully think about it and research what policies different parties have and make a prayerful decision before God as to where we're going to put our support. But we'll all go to the polls. We're in Albany away on a week's break, so we've got our postal votes sorted out. The votes will be counted and the result will be announced. And the slogan on some media outlets at the moment is this, Australia decides... Australia decides, which I suppose is a reflection of our democracy in our part of the world. And we believe in the sovereignty of God, so he's over all of this as well. But yes, we do have a decision to make. Just a heads up, God's not democratic. He's not democratic. He's theocratic. That is, he is sovereign over all and he has already installed his king. He's he's already done it. He's made this Jesus who was crucified both Lord and Christ and one day he's coming back. And in the meantime, he's working out his good and gracious purposes in amongst the mess of this world. Now, I don't know which leader we're going to get after the federal election, but I do know no matter which one it is, they are both flawed leaders, as are all human leaders in our world, which is why our hope can never be fully put in them. 
But can I encourage you just for a minute as we finish this morning to look at this leader, the one that God has installed. He's the crucified one. He dies for those who are under his authority who have often defied his authority. What kind of leader does that? He's the crucified one. He's also the risen one. He conquers death on our behalf for those who can't break free of it and who often live in fear of it. What kind of leader does that? He's the gracious one. He pours out his spirit on all who turn to him without any restraint giving us his presence forever. Bringing us new life. He's the sovereign one. His purposes cannot be derailed. His purposes ultimately will prevail no matter what the landscape looks like. Perhaps as you look in your TV screens or your computer screens at the moment, this is a particularly precious one. He's the just one. He will bring perfect justice to his world fully and finally one day. So friends, I want to encourage you this morning to rejoice in the one who is Lord and Christ. Sovereign and saviour. The one who reigns. How should we respond? Well, we've got a model here in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How should we respond? I reckon a defining moment, if we haven't already. A defining moment, something that will shape the rest of our lives. By repenting. Here he says, repenting and be baptised. Which is another way of saying, repent repent and express your faith in the Lord Jesus by being baptised. Turning from our defiance and trusting in him. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Finding moment. And then after that, if you've already done that, in hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of defining moments, as we live out our life of repentance and faith in Jesus, regularly turning from our sin and trusting in him, regularly coming to him and trusting in him, we will, be continue, we will continually be defined by the one who is both Lord. I want you to take a few moments just to
just to reflect upon what we've seen this morning. Jesus has won a new day of salvation for us. Let us rejoice.